Welcome to the Bridge Beyond English podcast. This is an English podcast that will help you expand your creative thinking, global awareness, and cross-cultural communication skills so that you can connect more deeply with the world. I'm your host, David Nagai. This episode is about empire, specifically the history of empire. Throughout history, we've seen many empires rise and fall. Now we have the American superpower or empire, and people are wondering if China might be the next superpower or empire. This episode is the second of a three-part series about empire. In all three episodes, I interview Missy Hart. Missy is an American living in Yokohama, Japan. Her current work has been acting as a peace and reconciliation consultant, which means that she communicates between different religious groups in order to create peace and deeper connection between diverse communities and ways of thinking and being in the world. She has a background in teaching in churches as a pastor or preacher, doing social work among poor communities, and has studied theology and religion, among many things. This topic of empire is huge and complex. You may not agree with everything Missy discusses, but I really do believe that this series of interviews will add wonderful perspective to the way you think about empire and the world we live in. So I hope you enjoy this interview where we focus on the history of empire. Missy Hart, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, David, for inviting me back. I appreciate it. I enjoyed our talk last time. I liked it so much that I decided to invite you back. <laughs> Glutton for punishment. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm sure our listeners are on the edge of their seats wondering what else you learned. So tell us more about what you learned about the Bible and about Jesus and about empire through your graduate school experience. Well, as I was mentioning, um, one of the things that they teach you in graduate school uh, for those who want to become pastors um, is about the history of the church. And it even goes beyond just the history of the church because Christianity is, is a movement that arose out of Judaism. And so a lot of the Jewish tradition, the Jewish tradition. And so our sacred book, the Bible, has both the history of Judaism as well as early Christianity. And so going back even to the days when the people of God um, were enslaved by empire, by the, the Jewish people, the Jewish people were enslaved by empire, by the uh, Egyptian empire. 
And when they were enslaved, the, what Pharaoh would do is that he made them work seven days a week making bricks. That's what they were supposed to do. So when you see those great, beautiful pyramids in Egypt, many of that was built on slave labor. And Pharaoh wanted to make sure that the Jewish people saw themselves as brickmakers. And that's it. Not human, not people who have rights or people who have worth. They are simply brickmakers. So in our story, in the Jewish story, God liberates the people from Pharaoh. Gives them freedom. Gives them freedom and takes them away from Pharaoh and leads them to a new land and begins to help them see themselves not as brickmakers, but as liberated people. So in the Jewish faith, and we have that also in the Christian faith, we have a Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day is a day of rest because human beings need rest. But when often you are functioning in empire, you don't get rest. You don't deserve rest. So this fascinated me, how empire makes human beings less than human and can structure it that way. And so we see this with the Egyptians, with the, the people of God, the Jewish people. Later, the Jewish people uh, become um, enslaved and captured by other empires, like the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire. And those empires, the way they maintained power is that when they took over the land and the people, is that they let the poor people stay, the conquered people, but they took the wealthy and the smart and um, the educated. And, educated and the politically powerful people, and they spread them all over the place. Within the empire or outside? Outside. Okay. Uh, they kicked them out. Kick them, pretty much kick them out or, and made sure they couldn't talk to each other. So they divided them and destroyed their unity. Destroyed their unity. A practice that continues on to this day. <laughs> so uh, I saw that in the Bible. And then I saw the days of Jesus, where Jesus is fighting uh, the Roman Empire and telling people that they were of worth, even though the Romans had basically told the people that they had no worth. So let's, let's focus on Jesus a little bit. Okay. So this... this Tell us about tell us about Jesus. He's such a mysterious and a misunderstood person in history. There's so many interpretations right. in American Christianity, in Christianity, and outside Christianity, all over the world. Who who was Jesus? What was Jesus doing? What was he really trying to do? Right. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that Jesus is perceived differently throughout the world uh, because the, this kind of leads to Jesus can be 
as a person because he lived in history. Who Jesus is can be different for many different people and used for many different purposes. Different ideologies or different things that they want to accomplish. Right. And so for me, what, and because I'm interested in the plight of the poor, the suffering of the poor, the suffering of the poor, I'm interested in why people fight each other, why there are wars, why there's poverty and hunger, uh, why there's divisions in the world, why there is status and class. Because that is so important to me, the Jesus that I read in the Bible is a liberator of that, is a, a, is a prophet that opens our eyes and begins to see the suffering in the world. Jesus is almost like a pair of glasses that helps us to see that we are people of worth. We have value. We have value. It allows us to see how we devalue ourselves and allows us to begin to see how we devalue others. Jesus says that the whole law, the Ten Commandments of the Jewish tradition can be summarized with just two things. So, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love yourself and your neighbor. That's correct. But the question becomes, who is the neighbor? And what is the answer in the Bible? Well, that's up to interpretation, and that's been over the years. This is why you see in American Christianity that is complicit with empire, well, the neighbor is my neighbor who lives next door to me and goes to church with me. And who is the same race and class as me. That's right. Right. While our others might see Jesus as saying, no, no, your neighbor is everybody. And not only just in your own city or in your own country. Uh, but So your neighbor kind of can then be like this breaking down of country and nation borders <laughs> into a more en- encompassing idea. One of the most absurd things that Jesus said in my interpretation is love your enemy. Mm. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely difficult. <laughs> Extremely difficult. But... What happens when we love our uh, love our enemies? Maybe they love us back, or maybe they kill us. Or perhaps we come together at different with different perspectives and work together to solve problems, respecting that we're different. And respecting that maybe we won't always agree and we have different interests. But through the concept of love, something can come out of that difference and that initial hatred and distrust. 
So if we hate or distrust or are suspicious of the other or the enemy for whatever reason, maybe they did something bad to us or maybe we think they will do something bad or they're just different and that makes us afraid. But if we come together, maybe awkwardly, maybe we have to speak their language or we have to figure out an uncomfortable situation. So we, if we do that, we can somehow, within that discomfort of diversity, create something new. Exactly. Like synergy or something that never existed before. That's right. And so if you look at that on a global scale, then you're not looking as the world is now divided because our world is divided now um, in between the, the South and the North, primarily, where wealth is accumulated in the North, Northern Hemisphere countries, and the South is often countries that are very poor. So the Global South people refer to as South America or the African continent. Right. So if we look at them that they are our neighbor, then they have something that is valuable and integral for us to be fully human. Uh, We can't be fully human unless we are all interacting together. And it might not be wealth or resources, but just in the interaction itself can expand us and make us more fully human. Okay, so a big message of Jesus is coming together with one another, no matter who you are, and to to love one another, to forgive one another, to have peace together. Paul wrote, and Paul is a very famous writer in the um, Bible, who took Jesus' words and expanded on them and applied them in real-life situations. And he said there is neither Greek nor Jew, Jew, uh, neither male nor female. There are no divisions. We are all the same. We are all one. Right. Our divisions come out of our fear. Divisions come out of our thinking that we are not fully human. Okay, so let's just talk about what religion and empire did with Jesus. How did they handle this revolutionary? And then we'll talk about the the next years and how empire and Christianity or religion changed over time until the present. But my understanding is that the Roman Empire occupying the land gave enough power to the elite, the, the, which is the Jewish elite. They built a temple for them and they said, okay, you can do your religion So he kind of kept the wealthy, the powerful, happy, but 
but the Roman Empire also controlled and abused the people. And Jesus was pushing against the Roman Empire, but also against the way that the Jewish tradition had become corrupt mm-hmm. and bad for the poor. Right. And so Jesus exposed the the system of empire that the Romans had built, and he was attacking the elites. So if we look at that in our current situation, he was attacking the wealthy, the people who have all the wealth, but he was also then attacking who was helping to support that wealth, which were some of the uh, Jewish elites. Uh, And so this was the message of the early church that we were counter-revolution, you know, counter-cultural. We were going to do things differently. We were not going to be incorporated into empire. So the message was counter-cultural, yeah. go against the, the culture, the empire, right. and the status quo right. religion. Right, right. Christians were radicals for love, for peace. And this was this continued for 300 years in the early church. Uh, Can we just go back mm-hmm. and just acknowledge that they, they killed Jesus? Yes. Right, because he was so radical. That's right. But, but different people interpret his death and coming back from the, the dead in different ways. Uh, a lot of Christians think that he came back and then went up to heaven or something, but What we do know for sure is that many people took his message and they lived it in their life and they also were persecuted or uh, disliked by the status quo religion and by the empire. So they were a minority, but they kept on trying to push for love, peace, equality, in the way that they could at that time. Right. They were, they were extremely persecuted and often had to worship uh, in secret and at great risk to their lives. Right. So they had to be very careful about getting caught. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to worship the emperor. That's right. 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 And this is what empire does. It says, you can have your religion but you also have to worship Caesar or whoever is in control first and foremost. And then you can do whatever you want with your religion as long as you don't make trouble, (laughs) as long as you do what I want you to do or our interests are in maintaining empire. It reminds me of the American Pledge of Allegiance, which says, I pledge allegiance to the United States, which means you will be loyal no matter what. That's the highest. And it is really sad that in every church that I served in the United States, at the front of the church was a cross. So churches have crosses to remember that Jesus died on the cross against empire. 
but every church that I served in, right next to that cross, had an American flag. And this was why I went to divinity school. I mean, this is part of the whole thing of going to school. How did this happen? You were trying to make sense of why is this empire and anti-empire side by side. Side by side. And people don't even see it. They don't see it. And in fact, if you try to move it, (laughs) they can't. Yeah. There's a, a kind of a joke about Donald Trump hugging the American flag at one of his speeches, saying how much he loves America. Yeah. And that is a, a great symbol of political empire and loving the flag. And he also holds a Bible up for a photo op in front of a church. That's right. Which enraged many it, many Christians were happy about it, but many Christians were very right because, very upset about that. Because once again, for our listeners, just a reminder that American Christianity is very divided. Yes, uh, there's many different types. So yep. some, yeah. So that's a whole. We could go on with that, but let's go back. Okay, all right, Missy, let's let's go back. We get too excited. I do. I get too excited. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> okay, so back to Jesus, mm-hmm. the early church. You said three hundred years later, mm-hmm. what happened after? So three around three hundred, mid three hundreds. Right. So about three hundred years after Jesus, uh, the Roman Empire was still functioning. But it was losing some of its, some of its influence, and there came to power an emperor named Constantine. And there's some debate whether he actually was Christian or not and converted. Um, I believe some believe his mother was Christian. But first, he was not Christian. At first, he was not Christian. First, he was anti-Christian. That's right. That's right. But then he uh, passed an edict that made our law, that made uh, Christianity the religion of the state. The official religion. The official religion, which means, in part, that any benefits of the state, if somebody wanted to receive benefits from the state, priority would be given to Christians. And so then you saw this huge huge, huge explosion in Christians uh, in the Roman Empire because it helped serve, help them to get the benefits of living in empire. Why did Constantine become a Christian and make a new law? Can you explain any of that? Yeah, I didn't really study that much of um, why he chose uh, Christianity. You know, the prior system in the Roman Empire incorporated many different gods and many different temples to the gods. And so these temples collected money from the people and exerted a lot of influence. And I suspect that Constantine was looking for a different faith system one in which he could control more tightly. 
So that would be only one god. That's correct. And the one emperor would have control over that one god. That's correct. Because I've, I've heard, this is probably one interpretation, that he had a dream or a vision about a cross on a shield in battle. Mm-hmm. And then he took that dream and he trusted it to be a sign. So he, he put crosses, Christian crosses, on all the shields. And then in that battle, they had a success. They had a victory and then he converted, he changed to Christianity. But maybe that's just kind of a, a myth about how it happened. Yeah, I, that sounds almost like a perfect empire myth. Yeah. <laughs> right? Where you take power, military power, and through this epic battle, God becomes welded to military power purposes. Completely interconnected. Completely interconnected. Right. So it sounds like a great story to motivate the people to make the transition from different gods and emperor worship to Christian empire. And now your military efforts and your military power have um, a goal and that goal is holy it's sacred and so it takes on more power than even the military power that it can exert so then our our wars our battles our military is holy and honorable and when I die in a battle it's for the glory of God. Right. And what Christianity also um, offers are messages. We have this message of love that comes out of Jesus. But partially from bad readings of the writings of Paul, I think. You mean poor interpretations? Poor interpretations. Christianity has a construct within itself to say us versus them, believers versus non-believers. I'm in, you're out. Correct. Yeah. Which is great for empire. Now they've got um, sacred and holy messaging tied to who is my enemy to the them. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So Constantine changes the system. What happens next in the in the spread of Christianity and the the expansion of empire? Well, eventually the Roman Empire will fall. And we have other empires that rise up. And So who is after the Romans? The Romans, in, in my view, it's the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman. Which is a different faith. Right. But still an empire that has within it a faith system that helps keep it expanding and growing in, in influence. And I believe what we begin to see uh, with Christianity is the ability to unite Europe 
against the Ottoman Empire and to engage then in this warfare that will eventually defeat the power of Ottoman Empire and rise up the power of Europe in the world. So what name can we put to that empire? No, I don't know if that empire had a name. <laughs> it, I mean, you would see it as, because it wasn't just one empire. It, it was many. So it was the English. It was the Spanish and the Portuguese and the Dutch, all Christian. So they were separate but unified by religion and partially race and geography. So they, they started to move from one empire to, to a group of kind of an alliance. Often in alliances that shifted. So depending on who was king at the time and whether they liked each other or who they married. So it was always shifting power and alliances. And we're talking now about like in the 1600s through 1800s. And during that time, technology changed. And so warfare changed. And more importantly, for the global aspect of this new age of empire, is that um, the ability to sail to far off countries became easy to do, relatively easy. And so you saw these many empires beginning to go all around the world and divvying up or um, dividing. dividing the land <laughs> that they encountered and the peoples that occupied those lands. And oftentimes converting people to Christianity or making them slaves or killing them or educating them in a way that makes them serve the empire. That's correct. And an interesting phenomenon, um, one that you could see here in Japan even, is that as these ships went out, there were three kinds of people on those ships. Military people to, for you know, strong power to enforce. There was commerce, so people who could trade items and establish businesses in these new places. And there were priests or pastors because empire needs a message. So the, the tripod, the three parts that uphold empire are commerce, religion, and military. Right. And I guess you could add in education as education. well. And often during that time, uh, Christianity served as the educator. Right. They would teach religion mixed completely in, like, a uh, religious interpretation about science or right. something. That's right. Right. Okay, so the British Empire became quite mm -hmm. dominant. Mm -hmm. And that was Christian. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that and then how it shifted to our country? Okay, so um, the English 
in their empire building. They had different strategies. Uh, I think in their first strategy, which was to go to the United States, um, they believed that they could just colonize the land and basically kill anybody who occupied the land. If they didn't agree if to they didn't. follow their ruling. And, and here we see religion, because those people, indigenous people who occupied the land, were called savages. And they... And uh, for our listeners who don't know the word savage, it means like an animal, a barbarian. Someone who is not able to worship God or understand God. So then is thus less human. So they could be easily killed. It's just like killing a bear. <laughs> so they categorize them as animal or not fully human. That's right. And that justified their massacres, killings. But, but something went wrong in the um, English colonization of the Americas. And I haven't studied that much of that, but it, it led to the American Revolution in the late 1700s and um, the establishment of the United States as a separate country. So from that, I think England began to see in conducting their empire building that they didn't necessarily have to have direct rule, that they could take over the land, leave the people there, let them have some of their culture, uh, but impose also their own culture onto these these people. Just enough control to control. That's right. So similar to the Roman Empire, you 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 know you would have the queen, but then you could have somebody within these other locations separate from England who were in rule. Right. But really in rule in name only. Right because it was the queen and her um, people who actually established rules. Right. So how did the American experiment uh, develop their own empire? As they incorporated some type of democracy, which was not true democracy, especially at the beginning, with slavery and the that women were not allowed to vote and so on. Uh, it developed over time. Mm -hmm. How did American empire resemble or copy previous empires and how did they mm -hmm. create their, their own unique flavor? So the American experiment is one that was formed on the ideal of democracy. Um, and on the ideal of capitalism. So probably that first combination than any other empire that you've seen before. Empire before had been agrarian more, um, but this was a different kind of empire building. There was no longer a king. Mm -hmm. um, 
But what quickly did develop, though, are families that are elite families within governance and within economic circles in the United States. So it was a democracy, but you still see this small group of elites with a lot of economic and political control. So instead of just one royal family, or like just the palace and the court in Great Britain, for example, now you had the high society. That's right. And it was hard to identify. You couldn't name it. You couldn't call it Pharaoh. You couldn't call it Caesar. So, so it becomes a little bit invisible because uh, just like a corporation, you can't, well, Amazon, you could say before, Jeff Bezos was the guy, right? right. But in a sense, corporations, you can't always say who exactly it is because there are so many investors. That's right. That's right. And in the expansion of the United States, there was this Western push. And you mean toward the West? Toward, toward Cal- the West. Toward California. Towards California. So you, you had some mobility in who could be wealthy. So it was like this carrot that was dangled in front of people that if you go West, you can make a lot of money. So the, a, the carrot is like baked and it attracts people. It attracts people. Go, go West and you can get gold and settle the frontier and live a new life. That's right. So you had, you had this economic system and an availability of infinite resources that made people believe that they could achieve the American dream and become extremely wealthy. Um, so that got people to buy into the system and ignore anything that they were doing that might hurt the land or the people who had previously occupied the land or people that they were using as slaves or as indentured servants or paying at horrible wages because um, it didn't matter. It, 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 all that mattered was that I could become wealthy. Right. As long as they pay taxes and follow the law. But in the wild, wild west, there was less law, less right. governance, and opportunity for those with power, with guns, with horses, with some technology. And it's very interesting in the United States during this time of colonization because religion changed in America. How did it change? Drastically. So before, the system of Christianity was very hierarchical. Catholic Church, there's a pope you might know about, and then all these people have to stay in line with the pope. And in Protestantism, which is a broke off from the Catholic Church, and Yes, there was less hierarchy, but um, in some sense, the church still had, there weren't a lot of different denominations. There were only several. Not so many different types. Different types of different schools. And, but once um, there's uh, American expansionism and colonization of the land took off, there was this great 
awakening in the United States. It's actually called the Great Awakening. And it was like a fire that spread throughout the United States um, where many, many different types of Christianities uh, became uh, into being, came into being. So the Great Awakening is the spread of different types of Christianity because they're spreading out across the country. People have this kind of confidence and also desire to do what's pure and holy, and then they disagree with one way, and they have a slightly different way. So they have a specific theology about heaven or hell or slaves or no slaves. Like that? Yeah, just like that. So it reinforced this idea of the independent person, in that time, the independent man, um, and that you could conquer anything that you set your mind to. And what you're doing is something that is holy. It's what God wants you to do. And so this led to the fueling. So here we've got the tripod again. We've got, we've got the commerce. You can make, make a lot of money. You've got a religion that's just on fire that says what you're doing is holy. You have some military victories um, with other countries, but you see this growing f- military force coming together during this time in the United States. And everyone has guns to protect themselves, right? right? The cowboys have guns going west. They kill the native population if they want or if there's any power struggle. Mm -hmm. So there's, in a sense, this independence of the individual cowboy, whatever you want to call them. They are the the military of their own life. They they are the protector of their family, Mm -hmm. but they're going offensively, aggressively to new places and conquering. So they're like mini, uh, miniature versions of what the American empire does. They create their own ranch, their own homestead, their own empire. And it, it's full of wealth and violence and religion right. and, and independence. That's a great point. That's a really great point. And remember I said there's a fourth leg, and that's education. And in the 18, starting in the 1860s, so after the Civil War in the United States, um, came this huge expansion of universities, mostly started, or in a large part started, by religious schools, different um, religious denominations. So education before had been primarily in the Northeast where you had these elite, the first wave of elite families. So they controlled education. So the elite Northeast uh, around uh, New York, uh, Boston area. So you have Harvard mm-hmm. and Yale, Yale, Princeton, Princeton, Dartmouth, all of those. Okay. But after, in the 1860s, you begin to see the rise of the university system countrywide. Spread out everywhere. Because now you begin to see the Wild West taming itself. Calming down and becoming a little more under control. Because now you have assets. 
you have some infrastructure. Right. You need stability now because now you have a farm and you have interest in that farm. You don't need everybody shooting and, and doing all that. You, you need education so that your children can do better than you. And so you see this incorporation then of the independent person into the empire at another level. Right. And by this time, the people have developed their own inner independence, and then they come back to be a part of this larger empire. In universities, teach you to be a civil, abiding, you know, servant in your country, you know, that to keep the laws. You know, we talked about this the other day, so. Right. At the same time, they teach critical thinking and exposure to many ideas. So once again, back to uh, the previous conversation, it's just enough sometimes to make people feel that they understand and can know the truth, but also there's still this kind of ethnocentric or American-centric or democracy-centric, like Marxism is completely bad, look at what happened, communism, look at China, completely bad. But it doesn't always talk about that the U.S. has problems with a democracy or that parts of Marxism have a great ideal if it's conducted in a better way. And what I think was happening at that time, too, is that... Now the United States, which had been focused on its own colonization of land, began to see itself as a global participant in its rise to power. And now education becomes um, something that will keep us powerful as a nation against other countries who are not educated. Because now education, we're moving into the age of modernity. So the modern. The modern time. And there's a high emphasis on technology and specialization. And so the university is needed to, as we rise out of this wild west, we become a tame society. We become powerful. We can look beyond and see ourselves as a player on the global scene, and education is one of the ways that we we maintain that power. And eventually with our natural resources and uh, also the the diversity of cultures and peoples and ideas coming to the U.S. and mixing together, we see this melting pot, this synergy, this new innovation and Uh, it grows and grows and the population expands and the ideas expand and eventually we we take that to other countries we we take uh, religion also trade business and eventually military yes so we continue this expansion of empire that's right so Moving forward into the 1900s, more and more technology, military technology, Mm -hmm. where do we go from there? 
Well, we got to two world wars. Right, right. Um, both um, that dramatically changed the world scene and how empire um, was constructed. And specifically after World War II came this idea um, of, you know, dividing up pretty much the world into ranges of power. Can you give an example? So I believe that uh, after World War II, there was a summit between uh, the major players in World War II that were the victors, and primarily that was Britain, the U.S., France, and, and Russia. But what arose pretty quickly out of that was that America and the, then Russia, that became the Soviet Union, were the powerhouses. Right. So they're the powerhouses, the main players, and then the Cold War comes onto the scene. But even before the Cold War, so out of World War II, the world becomes different in that it becomes more globally understood and structured. So out of World War II came the United Nations and came NATO. And so countries were asked throughout the world all right, these are the two superpowers, USSR and, um, and the United States. Pick. Pick which one you want to join. Right. And as long as you protect our interests, defend our interests, then we will support you. And then... And then we fast forward to what I had talked to you about in my studies back in university days about MAD, that mutual assured destruction. Mutual, uh, mutual assured destruction. Destruction, yes. right. And where only certain countries have nuclear power and the ability to kill, every, obliterate everything. And this was a dance that went on until the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, roughly between 1988 and 1991. Right. And then this whole time, American power is increasing, and it becomes increasingly clear that the U.S. is the superpower, is the new empire. Call it whatever you want. And before World War II, just to backtrack a little bit, these other minor empires like Portugal and um, Spain, France, uh, England, had pretty much divided up the world. Right, like they divided up African countries. They, They designed a new border, even though it wasn't accurately according to tribe or language, right. also South America. Right. And even you see some of that in Asia. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. In India. Yep. And after World War II, that was all dismantled eventually. So a new way of building empire was created. Right. Eventually, in the, like in the 60s, a lot of African nations were right. granted full autonomy. That's right. But again, they, they were then asked to join into these international organizations. And even though the empire, they became independent, 
Empire was still operating within them, especially commercially. Right. So, it, so, so it stepped away from the military control and the political control and even the education, but, but it still had that power through business. Through business, yeah. And access to the resources. Right. And when you want, you can just send a drone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So military power changes. It's not as life-threatening to those operating the drone. Right. Though it's extremely life-threatening to those who are bombed. Okay, that's it for today. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Missy Hart. If you want to listen to the third part of the series, that will be coming out next. If you have been enjoying the podcast and want to be sure that you never miss an episode, feel free to subscribe. If you are interested in using English to improve your creative thinking, global awareness, and cross-cultural communication skills, you can join a free trial class online or in Yokohama Motomachi. You can just click the link in the show notes or just visit us at bridgebeyondenglish.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, David Nagai. We'll see you next time.